Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 90th edition of the podcast, and I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, in Montreal. It is Wednesday, the 26th of January, and uh, for this edition of the show, I'm going to continue with my efforts to share some interviews from the archives. Uh, I've had COVID-19 the last uh, few weeks, so I wasn't able to record uh, new interviews for uh, a brief period. Um, So I took the opportunity to uh, look through the archives and wanted to share a few conversations I've had with different scholars and activists and artists um, who I feel really um, should be heard again. These were interviews I recorded for broadcast on Campus Community Radio at 90.3 FM in Montreal. Um, I've hosted uh, radio programs at CKUT uh, since I was 19. And so it's been just over 20 years since I have been hosting community radio interviews. And um, I took the opportunity to look through the archives. Um, As I mentioned, I wasn't feeling well um, uh, enough to coordinate new interviews. And I wanted to share some conversations I've had with um, voices uh, that I felt were important to rebroadcast. so this is a conversation I had with uh, author, ac- activist, and academic Stephen Salaita. Um, he's published a number of works. Uh, one of the important books that Stephen published is called Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. That was published in 2016. I was actually introduced to Stephen um, by uh, the late uh, Aziz Chaudhry, a friend of mine, an activist, scholar, and author who we lost this past year. Um, Stephen was visiting Montreal for um, uh, an academic conference um, on Indigenous studies and decolonization, and Aziz uh, suggested that um, I record something with Stephen for CKUT. Um, and so I wanted to share this interview I did with Stephen Salaita. It was recorded in 2009, and I think it's interesting to listen back. I took the time to, to engage with this content before sharing it with you. And I think that this interview points to the ways that um, there has been such a big push for many years to think critically about nationalism and colonialism, um, both uh, in what is called Canada and the United States, but also in relation to Palestine and the Israeli state, that these uh, points of critical thinking about colonial history and the dispossession of indigenous people have been building for many years. Uh, Of course, 2009 wasn't the start of this um, uh, wave of critical thinking, but it was before a lot of these issues were being addressed in mainstream frameworks. Uh, Of course, over hundreds of years, uh, Indigenous people have been fighting colonialism on the front lines. Um, And, you know, the work of activist scholars like Stephen Salaita, I think, importantly, draws from that history and uh, has attempted to point to the intergenerational struggle across uh, generations of Indigenous communities and um, nations, people that have uh, faced colonial violence um, and dispossession, such as the Palestinian people. Um, This interview was recorded also just after... um, Barack Obama entered office. So I think it's interesting to think about 
the ways that that moment politically uh, speaks to issues of race, issues of power, issues of um, how do social movements create change, uh, what happens when social movements are aligned to people within positions of power. Um, we get into these conver- conversational topics in our conversation, in our exchange. Um, so I just want to thank again my late friend Aziz Chaudhry for helping set up this interview um, with Stephen Salaita. Uh, I encourage you to check out Stephen's book, Internationalism, uh, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. Um, and here's our conversation that I recorded and broadcast in 2009 for CKUT 90.3 FM, sharing it today on the 90th edition of Free City Radio. This week in Canada, there was a lot of focus on First Nations rights. There was a protest that happened in a Mohawk community in Ontario on the U.S. Canada border where Mohawks called for the government of Canada to not arm border guards. So again, the issue of land and territory is in the news. Your work touches on a relationship between uh, colonial histories, one here in North America, but another in Palestine. Perhaps could you put forward a couple of key points uh, that you'll be addressing in your lecture here in Montreal at the ninth annual conference on race and anti-colonial studies in regards to any important links between the histories of indigenous people here in North America and that of Palestine. I'm going to be discussing Palestinians and Native North American nations in, in the context of how they might be approached and studied and interacted with um, in the field of indigenous studies. The point you bring up actually about the Mohawk protest on the New York-Ontario border is an important one. Um, part of what is comparable about Natives and Palestinians is the fact that they don't have sovereignty over their own land, and so they are dealing with an armed presence of foreign governments. They both dealt with colonial histories that used discourses of chosenness and specialness. It was called Manifest Destiny in North America, and then the Zionist Jews conceptualized themselves as as the chosen people in Palestine. So I I guess the key point that I'll be addressing and that that, that people can think about in the context of of Native North Americans and Palestinians is that, that they have existed as victims of a comparable and, in fact, a dialectical form of settler colonization, and they're still dealing with the fallout of of that colonization, and, of course, they're still resisting that colonization. And so I'm going to be looking at some ways that that people can think about conjoining that resistance, you know, uh, bringing them together, uh, seeing what we can do as scholars and activists to assist communities in their decolonial struggles rather than just studying them from a distance. One point you mentioned often is not addressed or talked about in in the sense that you're you're looking at this question, which is the idea of open land. Um, It's very much within the history of uh, Canada's national narrative, but also within the history of Israel's uh, national narrative. Um, maybe can you address more um, that that concept, the terras nullis, or you know, a land for without a people, for a people without a land. In the case of Israel, um, 
how critical is it is it to attempt to decode that that type of terminology and understand what it really means in terms of the whole process of nation construction yeah that's i mean that's a uh, that's an absolutely key point that you're bringing up if if i i think in the the united states and and canada some of the language and vocabulary is different, but, you know, the, the concepts and certainly the actions of the colonizers are, are more or less the same. And, uh, you know, this is, I would throw um, um, Palestine in there, too. The idea of the land being empty really arises out of, of historical and discursive convenience. Um, there's a sense that it, the Zionist settlers, the early Zionist settlers in Palestine, in the late 19th and early 20th century, sort of coded about their slogan, you know, a land without a people for a people without a land. And they were using this to drum up support, but also as a way of enticing Jews in the diaspora to settle Palestine. And in so doing, they end up, um, you know, they end up uh, uh, sort of running headlong into a reality Right of a very populated space uh, that 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 contradicts the the mythology that they're putting forward. But if you look at the early Zionist narratives of Palestine being an empty land, of it being a land of milk and honey for for Jews who want to escape oppression in the diaspora, for you know, and then the Zionist narrative of of draining the swamps and uh, uh, taming the land and civilizing the inhabitants and doing things with the land that had once lay fallow, they're actually appropriating that discourse from the settlement of North America. That's what I mean when I say that, that these types of colonizations are dialectical. They're in a dialogue with one another. Ben-Gurion and other Zionist leaders of the early and mid-20th century were well aware of the types of discourses that were used in the settlement of North, uh, of North America by Europeans, and they constantly appropriated those discourses and applied them to, you know, to, to this, you know, to Palestine. That, and that's where they conceptualized, the, you know, the idea of an empty land. And the other, the other uh, main discourse here that, that you can see in both parts of the world is not only the discourse of the empty land, but the discourse of, of um, you know, godly authority and godly responsibility, right? The, the legal system, even though it, it, it purports to be secular, right, in Canada, the United States, Israel, they actually draw a lot of their, their legal and philosophical rationale for settling the land on, on uh, doctrines of discovery, right, in, in Judaic and, and Christian traditions. But there is a key point of difference historically between the idea of discovery and, of course, colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about um, land being discovered, that is very much within um, uh, ca- the Canadian national narrative. Um, maybe talk more about um, the importance. I mean, there's the specificities of history in terms of um, illustrating the fact that in that North America was not discovered, um, mm-hmm. but then there's also just attempting to decode that that whole terminology. The idea of discovery, right? You know, we look at it and we see it sort of as, as laughable, right? You know, it, it was you know the, the idea of, of discovering a place that's already inhabited. Um, you know, it's, it's just. Uh, Eurocentric uh, and insulting to degrees that, that that are difficult to comprehend, but they also have a particular 
legal basis, right? And okay. that particular legal basis has been extremely important in all sorts of, of court rulings, for example, here in North America and also in Palestine. It's been remarkably important in terms of creating a normative identity for the settler society, right, as the proper steward of the land. And, and it, it also creates um, a philosophical basis for, for settlement. So the whole idea of discovery, as ridiculous as it is, both you know, on its face and and um, uh, and in terms of its its attendant discourses, it has been an extremely powerful tool for you know, I guess uh, the appropriation of indigenous lands. It's been remarkably effective. And Stephen T. Newcomb in his book Pagans in the Promised Land, um, he shows how it's still in a wide use in, in, in North America, not only as a philosophical discourse, but as a, as a legal rationale for the continued dispossession of indigenous peoples. Often that parallel is not made. The one that you're making between North America and Palestine, why do you feel it's important to make it and articulate it? Uh, for lots of reasons. First of all, because, because of the dialect that exists between... Um, between colonial discourses in, in North America and Palestine, it's, it's there. You can add other uh, communities around the world to that. Uh, you get a comparable discourse in New Zealand. You get a comparable discourse in Australia, Algeria, South Africa, really any place where Europeans undertook uh, permanent settler colonization. You, you get elements of discourse that are there. And just from a, a scholarly standpoint, a philosophical standpoint or an ethical standpoint, they are worth looking at, they're worth examining, they're, they're, they're worth, um, you know, I guess exploring, not only in terms of their similarities, but in terms of their differences as well. But when it comes to Israel and the United States, I think it's particularly important because those two countries are so aligned morally, uh, geopolitically, um, and in lots of ways uh, religiously, they talk always of a special relationship, and in fact, the United States and Israel do have a special relationship. They have a special relationship uh, philosophically, uh, theologically, historically, and most important, they have a special relationship politically. And one of the things that my work tries to do, and the work of, of a lot of other good people, is is to unpack what this special relationship consists of, how it came into existence, and how really it can be undermined. Um, I'm interested, as are a, a, a lot of people these days, in performing the type of scholarship that engages issues in the world and uh, can identify unjust discourses and unjust politics and then try its best to undermine those unjust discourses and politics. But with, uh, with say, Israel and the United States, um, part of the reason that they maintain the sort of power that they maintain is by working in conjunction with one another. And I think there are lots of ways, in turn, in which communities that have been colonized and dispossessed can work with one another as well. Not only just against their immediate oppressors in the United States and Israel, um, but also against all kinds of unjust politics around the world, um, neoliberalism and, and, and corporate exploitation and these sorts of things. We're at a very uh, interesting crossroads in regards to the United States. Um, there is, of course, a very strong history of social movements in the U.S., um, the civil rights struggle, 
um, the also struggle of the American Indian movement and, and the struggle for native rights. Uh, but we've now arrived in 2009 where we have Barack Hussein Obama in the office uh, in, in Washington, mm -hmm. in the White House. Um, in terms of this history, this colonial construct of a nation in regards to the United States that you talked about, can you maybe talk about it in the context of um, what we are seeing today in regards to U.S. policy? Some people talk about a sea change, others don't. What, what's your perspective on this? Um, it, it's, a, it's a great question, Stefan. I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> I, I, I sort of thought that in, in, in my travels to, to, to Quebec that it, it would come up somewhere along the way. And so I, I started thinking about it, and I, I really want to remain noncommittal without feeling like I'm just uh, backing away from the question. I, I guess I want, I want to give the man and his administration time, see what he actually does. I think that his, you know, the, the, the symbolism or the symbolic importance of his, his election is undeniable. The type of joy that it's given people and the type of inspiration that it's given people, in, in the United States anyway, um, it, it, it's palpable, it's, un, it's undeniable, and, and it, 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 that in itself is something worth um, celebrating. In terms of policy, I'm not really a believer in the ability of the state itself to change the policies in which it's entrenched you know the state the state i guess is engaged in neoliberal economics that are vastly unjust it's there to serve the interests of the economic and political elite and not the interests of everyday people when not in the united states anyway and certainly not in other parts of the world when you talk I, about excuse me when ahead. you talk about neoliberal economics can you maybe just explain what you mean sure i guess i mean um types of policies that open up other markets right in other parts of the world under the guise uh, or the, of the euphemism you know free trade Right, they open up those markets for exploitation for Western corporations, right? So basically, neoliberal policies sort of frame themselves as very progressive, but what they end up doing is sort of affecting the flow of goods and, and resources and money from the Southern Hemisphere into the Northern Hemisphere, from the so-called developing world into the industrial world. And so it maintains, neoliberalism maintains the sort of gap right the ever widening gap between those who are poor and the the very small community of people in the world who are who are um, unduly wealthy and so i see those those policies in the united states as as systemic and i don't think that any one person you know in in a high position of office can change them i don't think that people get into those positions of of power as presidents or senators or anything else unless they have already expressed an adequate commitment to these, these neoliberal policies. And so I think that people should watch what Obama does, watch what his administration does, analyze those moves, analyze those policies, and challenge them. And change is going to happen from outside of the government. It's not going to happen from within the government. And that's one of the problems with the, 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 the ideas of... of Western democracy that we're familiar with in, in Western Europe and Canada and the United States is that people think that they vote, right? And once they 
voted, they performed their civic responsibility, and then they can sit around and, and, and wait for you know, the, the, whichever politician they voted for to go out and do good in the world. But it doesn't work that way, right? When you vote, in the United States anyhow, you're giving somebody a mandate for power, but you're, you're not forcing that person to use power responsibly simply by voting. You have to force people to use power responsibly by pressuring them, by raising your voice, by getting involved in, in local and national politics. And so with Obama, I think it's, it's, it's whether one likes him or dislikes him, I think it's, it's remarkably naive to imagine that he's all of a sudden going to change the world for the better. That's not what the system sets up U.S. presidents to do. A great deal of Obama's election campaign revolved around the Middle East. Uh, there was, of course, a great deal of discussion on Obama's position in regards to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could offer a few reflections about Obama's policy in regards to the Middle East, um, mm -hmm. and not only the Middle East, but more generally the war that we've been seeing um, uh, around the world, really, since since 2001, also in regards to Asia and, and Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. With um, you know, with the, with the Middle East, Obama. I don't know. Obama, first of all, is is just he's he's an unbelievably skilled and intelligent human being. He's he's just a brilliant orator and politician. He 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 sensed a sea change in American attitudes towards uh you know the the invasion of Iraq and the presence of US troops there. And so he if if there was an anti-war mandate, you know, coming from the American population, he 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 very much harnessed it and and capitalized off of it. And a lot of people were pleased to see that that somebody was running on what they imagined to be an anti-war platform and concerning Iraq um, his 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 platform on Iraq, Obama's platform on Iraq, was infinitely better than than John McCain's and that of the Republican Party. There's no doubt about it. But it it seems like a lot of sort of mainstream liberals in the United States have become enamored of the idea of the good war in Central Asia, right, or South Asia. I guess in 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 in, in that in that part of the world. Um, with Afghanistan and 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 Pakistan and Obama is very much escalating uh, the conflict there. He's sending more American troops over. He's he's rallying um, on world opinion for it, and a lot of civilians are being killed. And um, a, a lot of the same problems with uh, military violence and military deployments that we saw with Bush are, are continuing to happen under Obama. He's also, you know. Shifting a little bit in 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 his outlook towards Iraq, so I, I would say that Obama has sort of presented a different vision, right, in in, in terms of the so-called Muslim world than than Bush has. It's a distinctly different vision. It's first of all a vision that's not influenced by uh, you know by godly concerns, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, right? You know, Obama's not sort of carrying forward this discourse of God telling me to do this, God's not telling me to do that. There's not that same sense of, of manifest destiny with Obama, but nevertheless, a lot of the same policies that, that, that Bush applied and adhered to are still in place, um, and people need to keep their eye on what is actually happening on the ground and not what their politicians tell them. 
So even if Obama is an improvement over Bush, and, and I don't think any sane person would say that Obama is not an improvement over Bush, I think probably an orangutan would be an improvement over, over, over Bush, just in terms of, of intellect and anything else. But just because he's an improvement over Bush doesn't mean that, that he's, he's producing just policies. It just means that he's an improvement over the worst president in U.S. history and that he still needs to be held to a higher standard because people are dying. He's escalating war. He's not ending war. And I, I think people need to get over this idea that, that sending troops to Afghanistan is a good idea geostrategically or that it's an ethical idea. It's neither strategically, it's neither strategically sound and it's certainly not ethically or morally viable. And so I, I guess with, with Obama, um, you know, th- th- there's more war happening and 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 uh, until he reverses the course of that particular policy of u.s military interventionism then uh, i i wish people wouldn't let him off the hook that is a conversation i had with uh activist scholar and author stephen salaita um a palestinian of the diaspora um an important voice he published a book in 2016 called internationalism decolonizing native american palestine um, I think in general, I was excited to share these um, interviews from the archives for a number of reasons. As mentioned, I've had COVID-19, so I wasn't able to record uh, new interviews for the podcast the last few weeks. Uh, next week, I will start doing interviews again. Um, but these interviews, I think, um, from the archives bring up a lot of important points of thinking about uh, current debates and how they've been shaped by pushes from activists, from authors, from social movements over many years. Um, if we think about the context of indigenous struggles for the land, the land back movement, struggles against corporate oil and gas pipelines um, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline or the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, uh, that the Canadian government is openly supporting today, while also presenting this rhetoric of being a champion of the climate and Indigenous reconciliation, I think it's important to look at the track record of a government like Canada, which has, you know, since the inception of this colonial nation-state, been based on the dispossession of Indigenous people. And I think that very simple point, but a point of extreme clarity that I think is missing in a lot of the analysis around why we continue to witness and to see these struggles for the land take place today is because the entire colonial economic political infrastructure of Canada is actually fundamentally constructed around these points of dispossession of Indigenous people. So I think it was good to hear Stephen Salaita's voice to think about how this critique and the social movements that have been pushing forward action and protest on, uh, on raising awareness and um, pointing to the continued dispossession of Indigenous people and also the support for frontline struggles of land defense that are happening right now, that these are struggles that... Uh, cross many years and cross many generations. Um, this was an interview from 2009, but of course these are struggles that have uh, crossed over many hundreds of years. So 
That's about all I wanted to share on the podcast uh, and the broadcast today. This is um, Free City Radio. This is the 90th edition. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you'd like to um, uh, engage with the show, if you want to send me an email, my uh, email is stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Um, I produce this podcast um, solo, um, of course, with support from friends and family, but it's something that I do out of love and uh, commitment. So if you like what you hear, please tell a friend. It's the only way that I can get the word out about this project. So spread the word if you can. I really would appreciate that. Um, and I'll be back next week with uh, two new podcasts. Um, we release two episodes a week. And it's a pleasure to share this with you today here on Free City Radio. Um, so I'll talk to you soon. And to go out on the program today, I'm going to feature a piece of music that I worked on with my brother uh, with the project Anarchist Mountains. This is from a release that we recently put out on uh, Alien Garage Records, which is a label that is based between uh, Wisconsin and Japan. Um, and the album's called A Balkan Spacewalk, and this is the opening track, Passage. So I'll talk to you soon, and take care.